Well, good morning, Yeovil Community Church. It's an absolute pleasure to be with you. And thank you to Pastor Adam and the team for inviting me to come and share with you on this Sunday morning. It's really a shame because I've heard so much about your church uh, as I've been involved in the Cinnamon Network as a strategic advisor to the senior leadership team for many years and also as one of their ambassadors over time. I've heard so much about Yeovil Community Church and what God is doing in you and what God is doing through you that I've uh, wanted to come down and see you for so long. But unfortunately, because of lockdown, I'm unable to be with you today. But actually, I'm looking forward to a day when I could come down and see what God is doing in you and see what God is doing through you. But I want to say at the very outset this morning, congratulations of all, uh, in terms of all that God is doing through the church, in terms of the impact that you're making and the way the kingdom of God is expressed through you. So it's a privilege to be with you this morning to share a few thoughts from scripture. Let's pray. Father, we ask as we come around your word that in the name of Jesus, you would pierce our ears, that in the name of Jesus, you would uh, anoint our eyes and in the name of Jesus, you will soften our hearts. And we pray that as our, as our ears are pierced, as our eyes are anointed and as our hearts are completely softened by you, that Father, you would be with us in a new and in a fresh way and it will become more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, like I said, it's an absolute pleasure to be here, uh, to, well, to be sharing with you this morning. And I'm going to be sharing uh, around some thoughts around church and community because I've been involved in this uh, for a while and in different ways and was involved in co-founding the Street Pastors Initiative with uh, Reverend Les Isaac OBE and with um, uh, Ian Critchler, who are both good friends of mine. And so I wanted to share with you some thoughts about my experience of ministry and engaging with communities. And I struggled because you're a church that's doing so much. I didn't struggle because there was nothing to say. I struggled because I wanted to say something meaningful. And so I went to prayer and asked God what was on his heart. And um, as I was praying, God really placed in my spirit for you the story that comes from the Gospel of Luke chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to read with me from Luke chapter 8. And we're just going to read a few verses. We're not going to read the whole of the chapter. It's a long chapter. We will make reference to it in a short while. But we'll just read a few verses from uh, Luke chapter 8. And it's the verses that talk about the woman that had an issue of blood. And yes, like you, I thought to myself, what has the woman with the issue of blood got to do with church and community? Well, actually, I think... It has got quite a bit to do with church and community. And as we look at this scripture, we're going to see exactly how it does as we reflect on it. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 8 and verse 40. And we're going to read from uh, verse 40 onwards. Uh, this, the title of this section of scripture is called Jesus Raises a Dead Girl and Heals a Sick Woman. Now, when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12 years old, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him and a woman was there who was subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and she touched the edge of his cloak and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are pressing against you. But Jesus said, 
Someone touched me. I know because power has gone out for me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told them why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then Jesus said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Well, may the Lord bless the reading of his word. So let me just say a bit about Luke's gospel before we go into the thoughts around church and community. The first thing I love about Luke's gospel is that Luke is a doctor and he's a theologian, but he's a fund and a disciple of Christ, obviously, but he's fundamentally committed to a historical, a factual historical account of what happens. So Ruth, uh, uh, sorry, so um, uh, Luke has a, a real ruthless fidelity to history and to facticity. He doesn't want to give uh, an opinion. He doesn't want to give a perspective unless that perspective is deeply rooted in evidence and that evidence is corroborated. And we read that in what they call Luke Acts in the New Testament. Luke and Acts go together as one book in the same way as Nehemiah and Ezra do in the Old Testament. So we call it Luke Acts theologically because they form essentially one corpus of writing. And Luke starts his book to, the, to uh, the, uh, the Emperor Theophilus and he talks about how he wants to give a historical and factual account. And the same thing is true here in the Gospel of Luke. Luke wants to give a historical account. And because Luke is a doctor, he's concerned with social, economic and political reality. But, you know, Luke also wants to give not just a historical account, but an experiential account. His, his, uh, his approach to scripture is incarnational. That's what Luke wants to do. He wants to ensure that history is connected with theology because Luke recognises that both history and theology intersect. That if you're dealing with history, you've got to deal with theology. And if you're dealing with theology, you've got to deal with history. That God works through history and speaks through theology. And sometimes God works through theology and speaks through history. So Luke doesn't allow for a false dichotomy of the two. He says the two must be held uh, together. And he says that because he recognizes that God works through both and therefore there's got to be meaning in both and there's got to be integrity in both. He acknowledges that one shapes the other and together they both create a narrative. But Luke is also concerned with what we would call socio-political realities. He embodies a unique concern for the disenfranchised, the dispossessed. And therefore, as we look through the Gospel of Luke, we see that he's concerned with the perception and presentation of women and the interaction with women. So women are dignified as we look in the Gospel of Luke. They're given status. They're given what Anthony Reddy, Professor Anthony Reddy, refers to as somebodiness, a theme he took from Martin Luther King when African and Caribbean people were suggested as being nobodies. He says that they were somebodies in Christ because they were fearfully and wonderfully made. And Luke picks up this theme. At least he introduces us to this theme of, of somebodiness, of, of being made in the image and likeness of God. In Africa, we call it Ubuntu, of being a person through other people, a subjective, interpersonal understanding of who you are as an individual in line uh, and an, an intrinsic part of community. So Luke dignifies women. He doesn't see them as commodity. He doesn't see them as chattels. He sees them as individuals upon whom the Spirit of God can rest and in whom the Spirit of God resides. And we, can, we haven't got time to look at all the scriptures there, but as you read Luke, you will see that. Luke dignifies children. 
Children were like women, were considered chattels and property. But Luke says, if you want to come into the kingdom of Christ, I want to show you that Christ says you've got to be like a child. And therefore, Luke dignifies children. He dignifies the sick and the less able. So the act of healing and, and restoration in the gospel of Luke is not just about physical, emotional, psychological or sexual healing. It's about the reintegration into society. Because being unwell meant that an individual was put on the margins of society. So Jesus touches the leper who people don't want to touch. Jesus engages with individuals. And then Luke talks about the poor and the marginalised and the disenfranchised. This all goes from the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, where we're told that Mary becomes pregnant and is and Elizabeth become pregnant. They both sing songs about God taking away their embarrassment and their shame. And, and the Magnificat talks about how God has, has dignified and honoured a person that was shamed. And so Luke is fundamentally concerned with church, Christ, and with community. He's concerned with what's going on beyond the four walls of the church. Luke is concerned with what we call the least of these, and he makes them the primary and the principal focus of his gospel, and he makes his gospel relevant to life circumstances. Well, in doing all of this, Luke is attempting and does it successfully to allude to, to reinforce, to enculturate, to embed, to ratify the sense and the, the reality that every human being is dignified and made in the image of God and every human being belongs within a community. And so we come to Luke chapter 8 and we begin to think about the context of the story of the woman who has an issue of blood. As we come into the first, uh, if we come into the chapter of Luke chapter 8, we see that we hear this story about the parable of the sower. And then we hear a story about a lamp on a stand Jesus restores a demon-possessed man. Jesus raises a girl to life and heals a dead woman. And uh, we begin to ask questions. What, what, why would Luke, uh, in theology, in, they, they have a phrase called reduction. And it's the way stories and texts are edited in a particular way in order to ensure that the message comes across carefully. So we ask, I have to ask this, the question as we think about redaction and about editing and about the, the way this text is stitched together intentionally by Luke, who's a doctor. He starts with the parable of talent. And the parable of talent effectively talks to us about, a uh, parable of the sower, sorry, talks to us about stewardship of time, stewardship of talents that actually uh, each of us have a responsibility to steward our time effectively and to steward our talents. And then he talks to us about the whole idea of a lamp on a stand, this idea that we must take ownership of what we can't be uh, indifferent. Uh, we can't be shy. We can't be negligent in managing whatever God gives us, that we have a responsibility to own our talents and our gifts and in owning them to allow God to channel his grace and his power through them. And this is what we're seeking to do when it comes to community. But ownership also means the responsibility to create boundaries. Because often in church, there's a lack of ownership around the gift. Our, our sacrificial theology means that we give of ourselves and we give of ourselves, but we don't take enough time 
to create boundaries to protect ourselves. And we'll talk about this a bit later, where G the Bible says that Jesus got up early in the morning and the disciples went to find him. I always loved that text because it says they went to find him. If they knew where he was, they would just say they would have meant to meet him. And it strikes me that Jesus was consistently moving from location to location in order to protect his boundaries, to make sure that uh, his life was balanced, that he had time with God, time with himself, and, and perhaps time with others besides the disciples. And this is fundamentally important. And I'll touch on this later, as I said, as we think about church and community, that actually while we live a sacrificial life and we engage with our community, there must be boundaries. And any boundary violation should be addressed immediately in order to ensure that you can maximize whatever God is giving you. That's part of your stewardship. That's part of your sense of ownership as you journey in the gospel uh, of Christ and as you seek to serve your community. And so we see that God gives us this story through the gospel of Luke, that we're to, um, we're to, we're to steward our, our times, we're to have boundaries. Then we have the story of a man who was restored, a demon-possessed man. And to me, this story is about mental health and well-being. As we serve our communities, as we serve our churches, as we serve our families, we have a responsibility to maintain and to protect our well-being and to protect our mental health. And mental health, especially with lockdown, is a big issue that's affecting communities nowadays. And then we hear the story of Jesus raising a young girl uh, from the dead. And this story speaks to me and the woman who got healed. The story speaks to me of death and grief and desperation and resurrection. And these are all the issues we're negotiating in our communities today. We're dealing with death through COVID. We're dealing with death through suicide. The biggest impact of, on young men for death is, uh, is suicide. We're dealing with grief, families that are left behind. I was talking to an individual whose uh, family member was, uh, who died with COVID and they said they wrapped them in a bag, put them in a coffin and took them straight to the uh, funeral parlor and then to the cemetery and he was talking about the grief that was left behind so here we have in this gospel of luke all these issues that affect our communities the issues of stewardship of time and talent the issue of ownership and how we create boundaries how we live in community how we navigate and negotiate contested space the issue of death grief and illness and the issue of desperation and demand. The woman who had the issue of blood was desperate and she was demanding a healing. And often in our communities, there's a sense of desperation and that desperation demands our attention. But we have to be very careful. So three thoughts I want to leave with you. Three simple thoughts. I hope they uh, help you along the way as you think about church and community uh, from this story. The first one is what I want to call the power of intentional religion. There's a guy called John Delolio. while uh, George W. Bush was in uh, office as the president of the um, United States of America. He set up what they call the White House um, uh, Room or the White House Initiative for Faith-Based Initiatives. And John Delolio is famous for coming, he's a sociologist, but he's famous for coming up with uh, three forms of religion. He says there are three forms of religion. He says there's what you call ecological religion, there's intentional religion, and there's organic religion. And he says ecological religion relates specifically to those symbols 
of religion. So buildings, artifacts like crosses or rosaries or what, whatever um, icons we use in order to, dis, to illustrate um, our, our faith, our semiotic symbols. He says that's what he calls ecological religion. It's to do with the ecology, the landscape, the world in which we live and how we manifest that world um, in, in our symbols and in the things that we have. He says then what we have is organic religion. Organic religion, he says, is the religion that we live each day. It's our organic faith. It's the way which we live out the, 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 the demands of the gospel, the way we live out what it means to be Christians. And then he says, in addition to uh, ecological religion and organic religions, intentional religion. And often in what they call faith factor research, we see intentional religion work out itself in uh, perhaps the interface or the engagement and interaction of Christian churches and communities with people on drugs, with people with um, promiscuous sexual behaviour, with people that are involved in violence, with people that are in prison. And what the faith factor research says around intentional religion is that the organic religion of our faith, because we're so grounded in Christ and Christ is doing a transformative work inside, it says that we have the intention, the intentionality, the ability to change. Because what we do is we take people and we socialize them into what they call pro-social behavior. And I want to suggest that there is something about intentional religion that's happening within the context of this passage. The Bible says in Luke chapter 8, verse 54, um, um, uh, sorry, verse 42 to 44, it talks about Jesus being in a crowd and his disciples and everyone is trying, they're trying to get him to the house of Jairus because Jairus' daughter is unwell. And something happens in the crowd, a woman who's desperate. We're told that the woman has an issue of blood. She's been bleeding for 12 years. She's desperate. And she's demanding a healing because the Bible says that uh, someone, um, Jesus was walking along and it says in verse 46, but Jesus says, someone has touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. And I want to suggest that, look, as we do ministry in our communities, we will be touched by individuals. And those individuals will be expecting us to have been touched. In other words, the woman who had the issue of blood was so desperate to be healed and she was so disappointed that nobody was able to heal her that she had concluded in her mind that I'm going to do the last thing that I can possibly do. And I'm going to go to this fellow called Jesus and I'm going to touch the hem of his garment and I'm going to believe that he is going to be able to heal me. That's what she does. And praise God, that's what happens. There's a lesson for us in that. That as we do our community work, it's not everybody that has a need that's going to express to us what their need is. There are some people that are going to come like Nicodemus by night. Or there are others that will come like the woman with the issue of blood. She's, she's ashamed. She's marginalized. She's demoralized. She feels dehumanized. She doesn't feel like a woman because according to Jewish law, she's ceremonially, ceremonially unclean and she's been bleeding for 12 years. This would have sucked the, the, the life and the breath out of her. She would have felt weak. She would have felt victimized. She would have felt inadequate. She would have felt ashamed. She would have felt less than a human being. And so she was desperate and she had a demand. 
But because she was so disappointed, she had been trying for 12 years. And because she was so ashamed, she couldn't say to Jesus, like some of the blind people or some of the others that we read about, can you heal me? And so she came and she touched the head of his garment. I want to suggest to you that as you do, uh, you, as you do your outreach work in communities, there will be broken individuals that have issues like the woman who had the issue of blood, addictions. They would have experiences. They would have had encounters that make them feel less than human and less than dignified. And for some of those individuals, their encounters and their experiences would have muted their capacity to articulate what they think and what they feel. And so that they will blend into the crowd. But their expectation, because of their, their, their desperation and their disappointment and their sense of dehumanization, is that when they come into contact with you, because you're a follower of Christ, and because Christ lives inside of you, as they touch the hem of your garment, as they come into contact with the kinds of words that you speak, with the kinds of behaviors that you embody, they're expecting that as they touch the hem of your garment, they will be healed. This is my point, that those who touch expect that those who are touched have been touched. You remember Jesus said in Acts chapter 10 verse 38, how God anointed, Luke said, how God anointed Jesus Christ of Nazareth, that he went about doing good and healing all of those that were oppressed of the enemy. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus said, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to set the captive free and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord's favor. You see, our social action is not social service. Our social action is an intrinsic and fundamental and inextricably linked part of our Missio Deo. It's part of what God calls us to do. It's part of what God calls us to be. Being nice to people is good. Being kind to people is good. Being accommodating and welcoming and generous to people is good. But what people need when they've got an issue of blood, when they've got an issue of desperation, when they've got a issue of dehumanization, when they're feeling less than they should do, they need people that they can touch the hem of their garments. They expect you to be touched. They expect you to be anointed. They expect you to be filled with the power and the presence of God. And so I say that our social action as the church is not about social service. It's about bringing the kingdom of God into people's lives. And that requires being in the presence of God. It requires those of us that are doing community engagement to be touched by God himself. Isaiah was touched, wasn't he? He was prophesying for the first six chapters of Isaiah, but he was prophesying as a prophet, had no anointing. But in Isaiah chapter six, it says, when I saw the Lord, hallelujah, he says that he saw the Lord in, in, in his temple and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. He says, God took a coal and God touched the coal on his lips and he said, woe is me. And all of a sudden he had a transformative experience with God that allowed him to be an agent of transformation outside of himself. We need to have a transformative experience of God. We need to be in that place of prayer. You know, the Greek word for prayer is the word proskuomai. It means, it's where we get the English word prosecute. 
And um, in the Gospel of John, we're told that uh, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. The word with in Greek is the word pros. It means to be in face-to-face fellowship, in uninterrupted fellowship. Now, if you read the book of John, John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And it goes on to say, And the, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then it says in Luke chapter 1, verse 16, 17 onwards, it says, No one has seen the Father except the Son, who was in the Father's bosom, but he's declared the Father to us. I want you to see the connection here, the logic in, in, in John's writing. He says, no one has seen the father except for the son who was in the father's bosom. Then he says, the word became flesh earlier in verse 14 and dwelt among us. And in verse one, he said, in the beginning was the word and the word is with God. In other words, that word pros with, he says the word was pros with God. It means to be in an uninterrupted fellowship. Because the word was with God, when the word manifested itself, the light could not overcome it. But more than that, the word not only exposed the darkness, but it brought the father's heart into human reality. No one has seen the father except for the son who was in the father's bosom with the father. He was prosing. He was proscure mind, face to face. This is what the Apostle John talks about in 1 John. He says, if we sin, we know we have an advocate. Advocate is a legal word. It's it's about prosecuting evidence. And you know what? If we're going to do engagement with our communities, we cannot just do social service. We've got to do Missio Deo. We've got to be in that place where we're empowered because the people that are coming and are touching us are expecting us to be touched. They're expecting us to be anointed. They might call it niceness, they might call it kindness, they might call it goodness, but they're expecting us to be touched. The power of incidental contact. This is what happened in this story. The power of incidental contact. The woman touched the hem of Jesus' garment. And in touching the hem of Jesus' garment, incidentally, something substantial happens. And that's true for you and I. That if you allow individuals in your community just to touch your garment and you're sufficiently anointed and you're sufficiently prayed up, then actually the incidental contact will turn into substantial engagement. The power of incidental contact is important. Allow people to brush up alongside of you and allow the grace of God to leak through you. Look, we're not talking about perfection here. We're talking about being available. I once heard a story about a king that had a, a servant and every day he sent the servant down to the river to collect some water uh, with two buckets. And one day the bucket on the left-hand side said to the, the servant, I don't want to go anymore. I'm broken. I've got all sorts of leaks. And what's happened with me is that over time, I've become so broken that by the time you come back, there's hardly any water left. And the servant said to the bucket, I know that. But have you seen the beautiful flowers that are on the king's table? The, the, the bucket said they're absolutely lovely. I've seen them. He said, what I realized is that when you were broken, I planted some seeds along the path that we walk in. And because I realized you were broken, I make sure that every day I walk along that same path and you water those seeds. And while the king drinks the water from the perfect bucket on the right hand side, the flowers that are on his table that beautify the experience of his meal are a direct result of your brokenness and that brokenness allowing you to water the seeds and in order to cultivate the flowers. And I cut them and put them on the king's table. 
God is not looking for you to be perfect. God recognizes where you're broken, but God has planted seeds in your community where your brokenness can make a difference and your brokenness can touch people's lives. You see, the power of of incidental contact is important. Uh, around about 20 years ago, I went to America because Les Isaac and I, who and Ian Kitchell were concerned about guns and knives on our streets. And I went to America and Les went to Trenchdown to see what they were doing to combat gun and knife crime there. I went to meet a guy called Eugene Rivers III and Eugene Rivers III set up something called the Boston 10 Point Coalition. Uh, you can read it online. It's referred to in some places as the Boston Miracle. You were having over 240, around 248 young people killed every year. And when they set up the Boston Miracle, they went out to um, the 10 Point Coalition. They went out to gang members and they said to gang members, listen, according to scripture, the Bible says if somebody offends you, let them know. So they said, look, there's an offense in our community, the way you're dealing with our young people and the way that people are being killed. And... Um, they they met with a, a, a particular guy. It was a, it was it was an off chance interaction. They met with a guy called Selwyn Brown, and Selwyn Brown um, was the biggest drug dealer in the area and controlled the whole of the community. And when the church leaders went out, they just happened to meet with Selwyn Brown, and Selwyn Brown connected with them. And praise God, Selwyn Brown actually became a Christian due to just this incidental contact. But Selwyn Brown gave the church leaders in um, in Boston in a place called. Dorchester, in the Dorchester district, he gave them uh, permission and license to go into any crack house. And so sometimes the church leaders would be witnessing and evangelizing and talking to um, individuals that were involved in gun and knife crime and drug trading as they were, were just packaging up their drugs. And I went there and I, I, I saw what happened myself. I went out with the, the gang patrol and, and saw how Christians were able to go into hardcore gang neighborhoods. In actual fact, it was, it was fascinating because um, Harvard University, um, uh, Christopher Winship and Jennifer Bering did a, a research on the Boston Miracle. And they said that the church became what they described as an umbrella of legitimacy for the police. That the church built such a strong relationship with the police and such an organic relationship with the community that whenever the police wanted to do an operation in the community, insofar as the church sanctioned it as a legitimate opportunity, it became a, a, an initiative or an operation that was executed by the police under the legitimacy of the church. It was phenomenal. I saw it myself. I saw things that I can't even talk about. I, I, I saw interactions that were just phenomenal in terms of the way the church was able to negotiate things on the street. There was an incident where um, a young guy had, had shot, uh, shot a lady accidentally and a lady was pregnant. And in Boston, a number of the police are, are Catholic and therefore this was an anathema. And the word was that the guy was going to be shot on sight. And um, it was the church that called the mayor and the, the chief of police and said, look, we know where the guy is. We're going to take hold of this guy. We're going to bring him in and we're coming with the press and we're going to bring him in. But we want you to pull your guys off and tell him we've got this under control and that we're, we're bringing the guy in and he's going he's gonna to surrender himself. And that's exactly what happened. It was it's powerful to, to see and to hear the stories of how incidental contact turns into substantial engagement and that's true for us and I say to people you know sometimes our incidental contact is, is almost inadequate when it first happens um, 
it, it, it just happens because it happens. We meet someone somewhere. We don't really think anything about it. And then we begin to build up uh, a, a conversation and a connection. I remember being in, in Primrose Hill and, and pastoring the church and just meeting a lady and just thinking, well, it's nice to meet her. And, and the next thing I did, this lady introduced me to uh, the, the councillors. Then she introduced me to the MP. Then she introduced me to the local borough commander. And then the local borough commander introduced me to the leader of the council. And I got to meet all sorts of strategic individuals. And then they introduced me to the um the the not just the leader of the council but a, a particular head teacher and we became very involved in the in the school it was incidental contact that led to substantial engagement but it required that we were filled and ready and anointed and resourced by god as we sought to do that the power of incidental contact the 10 point coalition was a powerful ministry um, in Boston. And they asked Selwyn Brown, they said, Selwyn, how do you recruit these young guys into drugs? Why do you find it so easy? And he said something, very simple. He said, it was incidental contact. We see them going to school. We say to them, how are you? How's school going? Here's an extra dollar or two for school. They come home, we say to them, how are you? Incidental contact. We give them an extra couple of dollars for sweets. Or, and slowly but surely, the guys... Just through incidental contact, substantial relationships were built up. And I want to encourage you, that's how it starts, engaging with communities, digging down into people's lives. It starts with incidental contact. It starts with you and I saying hello, saying hello. Some people haven't spoken to anyone for the week. And if they have spoken to somebody they haven't felt acknowledged, just to say hello is a powerful way of setting up incidental contact. And I say incidental contact comes by being present. But more than that, making your presence felt. There's one thing to be present. It's another thing to make your presence felt. So I say to, you know, be present with people. Be present. Don't rush the process. There will always be an opportunity to share the gospel. But in the first few moments, allow people to tell you their story. Allow people. People always say, David, you you listen quite well. Yes, I do. I talk a lot, but I listen well. Because I want to hear people stay. I want to hear what they're saying. I want to understand what they're going through because I don't want to just be present, but I want them to feel my presence. Say hello to people in your community. So be present, allow your presence to be felt and allow that presence to be permanent. The power of incidental contact. That's what Jesus had with this woman. She came in a crowd, she touched him and Jesus said, who touched me? Because virtue has gone out of me. And I want to suggest to you that actually we need to be um, individuals that are that are open to God and open to others to be touched so that when they touch us, they might find their healing. But Jesus said something else. He says, who touched me? He says, because virtue has gone out of me. And I, and I want us to take this seriously, that often we think that because we're serving God, we don't need to take rest. We don't need to create boundaries. We don't need to think about our well-being and we don't need to think about our welfare. One of the big things I talk to leaders and to people in ministry about is about boundaries. And boundaries is fundamentally important. In actual fact, the the first book of the Bible, the first chapter is about boundaries. That's what you read in Genesis chapter one. God says, actually, the world was formless and void. And then it says, God said, the first thing God did, didn't create human beings because he couldn't bring human beings into chaos and expect perfection. So what he did, he began to create boundaries between different types of land, between the heavens and the earth, between the sky and the land, between different types of waters. 
And even the flood actually is about a violation of boundaries. That's why the Bible says, God says we will never uh, flood the earth again because his boundary uh, was to designate that authority to Adam and to protect the earth. But actually in his anger, he, he, he flooded the earth and he said, I won't do that again. But God is saying, I won't actually violate my own boundary. And I want to just encourage us as we do ministry and as we reach out to our communities, that actually there, there, there is more than enough problems in your community. And there is never going to be enough capacity for you to meet every need. You're going to have to live with that existential angst, that sense of inadequacy, that sense of frustration that comes with wanting to do more, but not being able to do enough. And this is a pastoral concern. You see, I don't know if you've read the book of Third John. It's a, it's, a, it's a short book. It's only one chapter. It's the apostle John who writes to his friend Gaius. And I always say to people, people who are colleagues ask very different questions and have very different aspirations for you and your ministry than people who are friends. Paul, John doesn't say to Gaius, how you doing? How's the church growing? What's your targets for next year? He doesn't do all of that. He says, Gaius, I desire above all things that you might be well, uh, that you might prosper even as your soul prospers. He says, actually, I'm concerned for you. I'm concerned about the boundaries that you're putting in place. And I haven't got time to do it now. But if you read that whole book of First John, you will see where John's concern is. There's a guy in the church called D uh, Diatrophes. And Diatrophes, we're told, likes to be first. He's a person that's constantly uh, undermining the leadership of the church. And what John seems to be saying to me, he talks about Diatrophes and he talks about Demetrius. And he says, follow the example of Demetrius, but don't follow the example of Diatrophes. In other words, he's saying Demetrius is a good man, emulate him. Diatrophes is not so good, isolate him. Because if you spend your energy trying to deal with Diatrophes, Diatrophes would suck out your energy and you won't do anything well. I think that's true also outside of the church. And this is not about judgment, it's about self-care. Those of us in ministry have a commitment to people beyond ourselves. And if we're not careful, that commitment can be exploited, that, co that commitment uh, uh, can be commodified, and that commitment can be transacted. And, and if we don't take care of ourselves, we'll constantly be pouring out until there's nothing left. And the Apostle Paul says that there's no point in pouring out ourselves uh, in ministry until we become a shipwreck ourselves. And so I want to encourage us uh, this morning that as we're doing our ministry and as we're engaging with people, don't forget to take time for yourself. Don't forget to give yourself time to listen to music, time to watch a film, time to chill out with friend, friends, uh, time to uh, just relax in the garden, time to read. Whatever you need to do in order to ensure that you're feeling um, refreshed, that you're feeling replenished, that you're feeling recuperated, take some time to breathe. Because virtue goes out of you, even through incidental contact. Say so virtue goes out of us through incidental contact, you can imagine how much virtue, virtue goes out of us through intentional contact. Now, intentional contact is... Uh, the next thing that I want to talk about, because I talked about intentional religion, and that's the way in which we use our faith uh, to bring people into pro-social behaviour. And again, with all the warnings about boundaries and, and barriers and making sure that we're, we're keeping well. But I, 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 we, we need to understand that as we get engaged with people in our communities, we have to be intentional. Intentional in, in not just seeking salvation, 
But what I call seeking what is salvific. And I use the story of the 10 lepers. The Bible says that when the lepers came to Jesus, they wanted to be healed. It says all 10 were healed, but nine went on their way without any gratitude and one came back. In other words, one was saved, but the other nine had and felt the impact of Christ's salvific power. And I want to suggest that the more we engage with community, the more we have to come to terms with the fact that not everybody will be saved and not everybody uh, is intended to be saved. I know God wants everybody to be saved. But if we go into this ministry getting discouraged because we're engaging with our community and we're pouring out and we only get 10% return because only one out of the 10 is grateful or comes to faith, then we're going to get discouraged. Intentional religion gives us the, the conceptual framework and the confidence to say that actually we're involved in what I call salvific ministry. That people will come to faith, but also people will be transformed that may not come to faith. And so we may help a drug dealer come out of their drugs and never, ever see them darken the walls of our church. That's good news to me. We may see a prostitute come out of a life of prostitution, but never darken the doors of our church. That's still good news to me. Yes, ultimately, like God, because we have the heart of God, it says God desires that everyone will be saved and we desire that everyone will be saved. But we know that not everyone will. And so we mustn't allow the enemy to discourage us from doing salvific work because people are not coming to salvation. And this is what the uh, Apostle Paul says in Galatians. Don't become tired of doing good because in due time, you will get a reward. And I want to encourage somebody this morning who's been pouring out into the ministry, pouring out into the community, pouring out. And you're saying, Lord, I've been abiding in you and you promised fruit and you're only seeing a 10% return. You're, you may not even be seeing any return. And you're saying, I don't know if I'm called for this. I don't know if I'm good for this. I don't know if this is what God wants me to do. I want to bring you a word from the Father's heart this morning. And God says, I know the thoughts that I have towards you. The thoughts of good and not of evil, that to give you hope in your ministry and an expected end. God says, I commend you, good and faithful servant, because you're involved in salvific work, even though you're not seeing a salvation. And God says, don't give up, because while poor plants and Apollos waters, God says, it's I that bring the increase. And you know what? Your job might be just to be that salvific presence that brings that person out of a particular lifestyle out of a particular context, somebody else might water that seed and God in his wisdom and grace will bring the increase. And so be encouraged uh, with intentional religion. Be encouraged that God is able to move and God is able to touch people, even though you might not see them come to faith today. So the power of incidental contact the power of, uh, of intentional contact, the power of intentional religion. And then I want to say the last, um, the last thought I want to bring with you this morning is the power of intentional impact. As I read through this story, I was shocked. The power of impactful contact, intentional and impactful contact. The Bible says that when Jesus was in the boat, and the boat was affected by the storms. The Bible says that Jesus got up in Luke chapter 8 verse 24. It says he got up and he rebuked the wind and the raging waters and the storm subsided and all was calm. 
You see, having incidental contact is fine. But like I said, those who touch expect those who are touched to be touched. We need to be in the presence of God. Having intentional contact and intentional religion is fine. That we do the work and we seek to bring people into a living relationship with Christ. Maybe we might get a 10%, 20%, 30% return. We dealt with that. But we must get a return. There must be impact from the community work that we do. Otherwise, we're just doing social services. So when Jesus, and it's in the text, when Jesus saw that there was a storm, the Bible says he spoke and the storm stopped. Luke chapter 8, verse 24. There was an impact as a result of Jesus's presence. The demon-possessed man, we're told in Luke chapter 8, verse 34. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported it in their towns and synagogues. And the people went to see what had happened. Listen to this. When they came, in verse 35, when they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. They saw him dressed and in his right mind. If you read the story, you hear that he used to be naked. He wasn't in his right mind. Between Mark and Luke, they say that some of them say he was a self-harmer, that he was cutting himself. Uh, he lived in a cemetery. He used to live in a home with a family. Uh, legend had it that he was uh, tied in chains, at least it's in the scriptures, that he would break the chains. The reality is that when they saw Jesus, that, that the power of intentional religion, they also measured the impact there must be impact. If there's no impact, it's probably because our incidental contact is not lacerated with the presence and the power and the grace of God. We're not anointed like Jesus was. We're not binding a broken heart. Like we just reduced social action to social service instead of making it an intrinsic part of our Mishael Deo. The demon-possessed man was in his right mind. And then the woman who had the issue of blood, Luke chapter 8, verse 34, she came up behind him and she touched the head of his cloak and immediately the bleeding stopped. Can you see? Intentional contact, incidental and intentional, sorry, incidental contact, intentional contact, and now impactful contact. The woman touched the hem of his garment and she was healed. When we talk about the story, as we go through the book of, of Luke, the story of the woman, the young girl that was dead in, in, in the latter part, verse, verse 43, verse 40, um, 43, 44, going onwards. It says the dead girl came. Jesus went to the dead, dead girl's house, sorry, and she was dead. And when he came in, the people laughed at him because she was dead. But it says Jesus took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. And at once she stood up. The power of impactful contact. Impact is the result of intention. Intention comes as a result of incidental contact. But incidental contact is only able to move on to intentional compact, uh, contact and impact when we're filled with the power and the presence and the glory of God. And my prayer for you, Yeovil, community church is that as you do all the work that you're doing and as you allow God to strengthen you and give you grace 
that you would find that your incidental contact turns into intentional engagement, which yields impact. But as you do that, take care of yourselves. There's a time and a season for everything. Solomon tells us a time to rest and a time to sleep, a time to work and a time to play, a time to sit down and a time to go out. Make sure you take care of yourselves. Hold one another accountable. Don't just allow people to keep serving and serving and serving until they become discouraged, until they become disillusioned, until they become disenfranchised and they lose a sense of what God has called them to. So as you continue to serve your community, my prayer is that God will continue to minister to you. May the Lord bless you, Yeovil Community Church. May the Lord keep you, Yeovil Community Church. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you, Yeovil Community Church. And may the Lord give you his peace, Yeovil Community Church, in Jesus' name. Amen. Bless you. Thank you for the opportunity to share with you this morning. And uh, I look forward to coming down and seeing you in person and sharing fellowship with you by God's grace. Bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.